Today's reading comes from the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 4 to 25. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. This is the word of the Lord. I'll bless you this afternoon. About 20 years have passed since the events that we've just heard about. And there's a small group of travelers who've disembarked from a ship that was recently docked in the magnificent harbor at Caesarea. On the docks, the companions make discreet inquiries. Does anyone know of any followers of the way who are living in this city? They need a place to stay that night. Well, it's not long before they find a man who tells them that he is a follower of Jesus, and he's willing to take them to the home of one of the leaders of the church in Caesarea, a man named Philip. Still living two decades later, a missionary 
in his adopted home of Samaria. Luke records this event in Acts chapter 21, verse 8. Leaving Ptolemaeus the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. Philip is full of joy at the unexpected arrival of the Apostle Paul and his companions. And soon the word gets out and other members of the church start arriving at Philip's house. Philip and the Caesarean Christians were well, eager to hear about the spread of the gospel and the planting of churches in Galatia, Macedonia, and Greece. So Paul and his companions agreed to stay several days. But in the course of those days, it is not only Paul who shares stories. In this party of travelers, as well as Paul, is Silas and Timothy, Sopater, Aristarchus and Secundus, Gaius, Tychicus and Trophimus. But there is also a former slave, a doctor called Luke, and he listens intently as Philip tells of how he came to serve the Lord in Samaria. Philip tells two stories in particular which stick in Luke's mind and which then end up in the pages of the book of Acts. To parallel Paul's account of the, the gospel spreading west into Europe, Philip tells the story of the conversion of an Ethiopian court official which led to the gospel spreading south and into Africa. And we'll look at that wonderful and very moving story next week. But he also tells the story of how those in Samaria first came to believe in Jesus and to receive the Holy Spirit. And it's a story which, if we read it carefully, turns out to be all too familiar to us, living as we do today in an age of individualism in which even the Spirit-filled life has been made into a commodity to be bought and sold, most conspicuously by the, the personality cults that masquerade as the ministries of TV evangelists. Luke's recounting of Philip's story begins with the believers in Jerusalem being persecuted and scattered and we should just pause there before we go on with the story and think about the circumstances and what's being said here. Under the circumstances of sudden, abrupt persecution so early in the life of the church, surely the Christians would have doubted that God's blessing was with them. Something, they must have done something wrong to suddenly be under this persecution. But then they thought, of course, of the example of Jesus who suffered and died, and yet there was no indication that he wasn't doing the will of God. And so they were not put off sharing the good news, even despite their unfavorable circumstances. And I don't know about you, but that feels like quite a challenge to me. Our circumstances are pretty unfavorable in a lot of ways 
not just our church, but many churches, but I think particularly of our church. Will we let our unfavorable circumstances put us off sharing the gospel? Please let us not do that. Well, the story continues. Verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And Philip is Luke's prime example of those who preached the word wherever they went. I'm going to work quite closely through the text, so if you have a Bible, it might be worth having that open. Verse 5, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And of course, he can proclaim Jesus as the Messiah because these Samaritans understood Jewish hopes. They weren't the same as the Samaritan hopes, but they understood those Jewish hopes. And Philip, we're told, performs great signs and miracles among them. He delivers evil spirits out of many, and many who are paralyzed or lame are healed. Now, so far in the book of Acts, Luke has been clear that it is the apostles who've performed uh, the signs and wonders. But just as the church is now expanding, so the anointing of the Spirit is spreading out. Stephen, we've been told already, uh, is a man full of God's grace and power, and he did great wonders and miraculous signs. But now we know that Stephen's experience was not unique. The point is, this makes it clear for certain that the power of the Spirit is not only for the apostles. The Spirit's power is available to others who would believe because of them. And it's fascinating to see the impact of the miraculous things Philip performs. In verse 6, when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. Striking, isn't it? These signs and wonders complement the message of the good news. They serve to authenticate the message. Healings and exorcisms, of course, do this best. They reveal what it would be like when the kingdom of God comes in all its fullness. Because when the kingdom comes, there will be no sickness. There will be no demonic oppression or possession. So these signs are perfect complements to the preaching of the good news of the coming kingdom of God. Someone here who is not an apostle performs miraculous signs. And we're told the results in verse 12. When they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. John Stott says it's hard for us to conceive the boldness of the step Philip took in preaching the gospel to Samaritans. See, there'd been a thousand years of growing hostility between Jews and Samaritans. It began when ten of the tribes of Israel broke away from Judah and Benjamin and set up their own king following the death of Solomon. This northern kingdom, Samaria, existed apart from Judah for several centuries 
before it was destroyed by Assyria in 722 BC. And the Assyrians, when they destroyed the northern kingdom, they had a policy of mixing their own people in with the populations so that that population that had been conquered could never pull together as a nation, again, a single people. And so the Jews then regarded the Samaritans as, well, an impure race. And the result was that Samaria was no longer considered descendants of Israel. Then in the 6th century BC, when the Jews themselves returned from their own exile, conflict arose over the restoration of the temple in Jerusalem. And this only got worse in the 4th century when the Samaritans constructed their own rival temple on Mount Gerizim. And at the same time, they decided to reject most of the Hebrew scriptures, apart from the first five books, the Pentateuch. And the Samaritans were now religiously heretical as well as racially compromised in the eyes of the Jews. And finally, in the second century, the Samaritans actually fought against the Jews. And in due course, the temple on Mount Gerizim and the city of Samaria were both destroyed. Jews and Samaritans hated one another. So much so that the Samaritans refused when King Herod the Great offered to rebuild their temple for them in 25 BC. It had been revolutionary when Jesus had gone through rather than around Samaritan territory when he traveled between Galilee and Jerusalem. Let alone when he stopped and he spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well. So, in verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. And we're expecting at this point in the story judgment. There must be criticism. Why would you share the gospel with this false people? But this is not judgment. In fact, it is curiosity and perhaps caution. But notice what happens when they arrive in verse 15. They prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Peter is present, you'll note, as we read Acts. Each time a new group accepts the word of God. First of all, the Jews at Pentecost. Now the Samaritans under Philip's ministry. And soon it will be the Gentiles themselves under, in Cornelius' household. Peter's presence there acts to confer legitimacy on each of these advances of the gospel message. But I think it's particularly exciting to see John here praying for Samaritans to be filled with the Spirit. Do you remember what we've been told about John in relation to Samaritans by Luke? In his gospel in chapter 9, Jesus has set out with the disciples from Galilee on the way to Jerusalem for the last time. And we're told he sent messengers ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. 
When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? And here is John in Samaria, praying that Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit. Here is John calling down fire from heaven, but in completely the opposite sense. But this, of course, points us to another extraordinary thing about the events that are recorded in this passage. Verse 15, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. So Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. People who have believed in Jesus, who have been baptized in water, have not received the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, we know that for sure that something is wrong here because Luke tells us that they had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Acts is clear, both baptism in water and in the Spirit are needed. Peter himself had laid down this pattern when he addressed the crowd at Pentecost. You remember what he said? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It does seem that these elements, believing, water baptism, baptism in the Spirit, these elements are distinguishable from one another. And they are separable. But one thing that can be no doubt of in the New Testament is that the absence of any one of these elements is a deficiency which needs to be addressed at the first possible moment. So let me ask you, are any of those elements a deficiency for you? Believing in Jesus, being baptized in water, being baptized in the Spirit. In Acts 8, let's be clear, it's not that Philip's preaching was inadequate. Peter and John lay hands on the believers there. They don't correct what they've been taught. They don't give extra teaching. So why is it that the Holy Spirit was withheld? Well, one reason I think is suggested by what we've said already. This is a big moment. The first non-Jews are becoming believers, and they need to be there to confirm the legitimacy of this. This is more than simply a few Jewish believers extending an invitation to a few Samaritans to follow Jesus. This is the moment when the thousand-year schism between the Jews and the Samaritans is healed in Christ. This is a huge moment. And so the presence of the leading apostles provides a significant affirmation. But I want to suggest to you another reason why the power of the Holy Spirit is initially withheld. And it comes from this strange story that we're told of Simon the sorcerer. So turn with me to verse 9. 
Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he'd amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. The Samaritans in this unnamed Samaritan city already have a miracle worker before Philip comes to town. All the people have been amazed at Simon, who they call the great power of God. These people are impressed by the miraculous. They hold in high esteem those with apparently supernatural power. But the miracles that accompany Philip's preaching are very different from Simon's sorcery. Where Simon points to himself, boasting that he is someone great, Philip's message is good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the oddest things about this story, I wonder if you've noticed, is that Philip completely disappears in the middle of it. Once Peter and John are introduced, Luke makes no more mention of Philip's ministry in this city. And the Samaritans who believed in Jesus, they don't clamor for his return. Philip hasn't been building a cult of personality like Simon had. His miracles are signs, not sorcery. His message is about Jesus, not about himself. So why had they not received the Holy Spirit? Well, in the first instance, I think the unity of Jewish and Samaritan believers is such a significant moment. But also, there was a huge danger of Philip becoming the new great power of God. He can bestow power on those he lays hands on. But instead of that, Peter and John make this short visit and they initiate the first of these believers into the power of the Holy Spirit. And this signifies to the Samaritans that this is God's mission and that people have parts to play and it reminds me of what uh, Paul says uh, to the believers in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. One says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned each to his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. Isn't that a perfect description for Philip's ministry here too? Withholding the, the gift of the Spirit for a time detaches the power of God from any one person and from the building of a, a cult of that person in the eyes of the Samaritans, eyes of people who have already proven themselves susceptible to that kind of misplaced devotion. Sadly, 
In today's church, we are still all too enthusiastic about the cult of personality. Particularly, I have to say, the cult of miracle healers. It disturbs me especially, I think, when I see on the television the sale of God's Word. I wonder if you've seen them before. I remember the first time I saw a Bible with the name of an evangelist printed in gold letters on the front. It feels to me as if you can't have read it very carefully if you've put your brand on the front of it. But there's more to Simon's story. Verse 13, Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon has been accused down the centuries of all sorts of sins. In fact, the term simony means buying or selling the things of God. Now, I don't want to make a defense of Simon. He clearly does wrong because Peter tells him so. But I do want to ask, in exactly what way does he do something wrong? What is the sin that he commits that Peter tells him to repent of? He believes and is baptized. And Luke doesn't seem to question the reality of his conversion. But there is a hint that something might be wrong in the phrase that Luke uses, saying that he's astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Remember, in the gospel stories, the crowds are astonished. The crowds are amazed. They're not convicted. Another hint that something's not quite right comes in verse 18. Simon's request comes in light of seeing that the gift of the Spirit comes through the laying on of hands. In other words, there is a human element involved. Simon has made his money and his name by these kinds of actions that at least appear to carry supernatural power. Incidentally, I, I think it's worth saying here that there is no hint of demonic or occult activity from Simon. His sorcery is conjuring. He knows that it has no power. That's why he's so amazed when he sees real miracles. But since Simon has sold his own great power in the past, it's not really surprising that he should think others might do the same. He hasn't recognized that this is truly God at work, and it's not in the control of, of any person or in any person's power to sell. And so Peter responds, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. It's then that we get to the real issue. It isn't so much that Simon wants to buy the Holy Spirit, which of course is as foolish as it is sinful. It's that his reason for wanting this power reveals a deeper problem in his life. In verse 21, you have no part or share in this ministry 
because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Peter, given insight by the Holy Spirit, recognizes the root of Simon's request, bitterness. Why? Why is Simon bitter? What's he bitter about? Could it not be the loss of his status as the great power of God? His loss of face? If only he could have the ability to dispense the power of God by laying his hands on others, then he would reclaim his status, his position in the city. Perhaps he's bitter against God for demonstrating so publicly that he is not who he wanted people to believe he was. He's not the personification of God's power. It's interesting that Luke tells us that the city was filled with great joy at the signs that Philip did, which of course is the exact opposite of the bitterness that Simon is filled with. And Peter speaks very sternly to Simon when his sin comes to the surface. Uh, we tend to be, want to be much more forgiving. When we confront people about sin, we want to be gentle. I wonder if perhaps this passage suggests we ought to confront besetting sin more directly, more forcefully sometimes. Well, Simon may not have intended to sell the laying on of hands and the gift of the Spirit to others, but he is clearly a member of the church for what he can get out of it. He's willing to put some money in. He's willing to invest in the church, if you like. But he's looking to his own benefit to serve his bitterness by rebuilding his reputation as a power to be reckoned with through the resources the church can give him. This is the very definition of consumer Christianity. And all believers and all churches are susceptible to this. We say, I'm willing to pay the church with time and money and my emotional and relational energy as long as it gives me what I want, as long as it meets my needs, as long as it serves to help me in my life, as long as it addresses the things I wanted to address. I don't want those things the Bible says might happen to me to happen to me judgment and the like. I want my ticket to heaven, but I want my life today on my terms. Faith has to fit in with that. It is so easy for churches to make consumers instead of disciples, to ask nothing of congregants, to beg them to belong, to serve their every crazy, selfish, sinful need in the hope that they'll keep turning up and keep putting money in the collection plate. The public sale of Jesus, which masquerades as Christianity in the church in North America, is nothing short of scandalous. Consumer Christianity is completely unacceptable to God. 
and to those who try to live their Christian lives as if the church was a store where we come when we feel we need to buy more religious goods and services, Peter's words remain true. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For us today, there are two ways to approach the church. The first is as a place to get my needs met, a place to equip me to have a good life. This is why the prosperity gospel, health, wealth, and happiness is so popular. It's what so many people are looking for. But there's a second way of thinking about the church. The New Testament's picture of the church is God's missionary people. That's why Peter says to, to Simon, you have no part or share in this ministry. That's what it is to be a member of the church, to have a part, a share in God's mission in the world. And that's the real contrast here between Simon and Philip. Simon is only interested in his own mission. Philip is on the mission of God. And that's the choice that the Christian life Sorry, that's the choice about the Christian life that Acts presents us with, consumer or missionary. Now, when you're a missionary, does God meet your needs? Of course he does. Remember Jesus' words, your heavenly Father knows your needs. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. In his bitterness... Simon cannot share in the power of the Spirit because he has no part in the mission of the Spirit. You cannot serve the mission of God and yourself. One has to give way to the other. Luke's appeal to us in the book of Acts is simple. Believe in Jesus be baptized in water as a demonstration of your faith in him, receive the Holy Spirit, and then in the power of the Spirit, be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord, and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Let's pray. Lord, we're conscious that although we don't practice sorcery and we aren't trying to sell the Spirit, we are always tempted to make the Christian life revolve around us. Lord, we want a part in your ministry. We want a part in your mission. We want to be missionaries, not consumers. Help us, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.
You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.